thank you so much, Ethan, for giving us those announcements. And uh, oh yeah, I keep on forgetting um, to put it in the official slides or ask for it to get put in the official slides. But if you are interested in counseling at uh, CVM camp, uh, so that's on me, that's not on you guys, AV team. Um, if you're interested in counseling at CVM camp, please let me know. Uh, I would be more than happy to talk to you about, uh, about counseling at CVM and what, the, what that entails, what the training will be lo look like and, and whatnot. So um, yeah, that's just the last announcement. Just totally forgot about that. So that's my bad. Um, hey, it's good to see all of you. Um, during our last three weeks in the book of Judges, we have seen how Israel's compromises and failures to obey God completely have led to their discipline. And because Israel entered into a covenant relationship with God in Deuteronomy, their failure to keep their promises in the covenant leads to the experience of covenant curse. Now, while covenant curse manifests itself in a few different ways, one of the co those consequences is being, sub is being subjected, uh, subjugated sorry, by foreign nations, which is something that we see throughout the book of Judges. Now, before we take a look at what God wants us to understand about himself, uh, and his plans in Judges 4, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you for uh, just your word and for how uh, even in the books of the Old Testament, books that might not seem as if they are so readily applicable uh, to us, that um, they are readily applicable to us because it is your word. It does have power. And because it has power, um, there is something for us to apply to our lives. There are things that you want us to understand and uh, think about. And we pray, Father, that as we study your word, that we would be diligent to pay attention to the details uh, in the text that help us see the bigger picture. And as we see the bigger picture, may we not be those who merely hear your word and then move on and do nothing with what your word has to say, but May we hear it and may we act upon it. May we apply it to our lives. May we be doers of your word. We pray that, Father, you would give us a great attentiveness at this time, especially uh, since um, there are just so many different distractions that are possible uh, this evening. And uh, we pray that uh, you would just uh, glorify yourself above all. Um, and uh, may we not um, allow ourselves to uh, be distracted or dismayed by uh, anything that we might encounter. It's in your sons that we pray. Amen. All right. Well, many of our television shows and movies we watch uh, that are related to superheroes have commonalities when it comes to introducing their protagonists. The story opens up focused on an unassuming male or female, who for all intents and purposes is just a normal person like you or me. All of a sudden, either before or after they receive powers, if they have powers at all, they are faced with a situation that demands a hero's intervention. And the question that faces the audience ever so briefly is, will our hero or heroine step up and save? We are faced with a similar question as we studied Judges 4 tonight. Who is the real hero or heroine of the story? Many of you have heard it taught before, and you've at least understood that Deborah and Barak are the main characters. Like most of the stories in Judges, 
We assume that the hero is the judge that God raises to deliver Israel. However, the author of, the, of Judges is intentionally ambiguous as he recounts how Deborah and Barak worked together to save Israel. So, who do we focus on in, uh, in order to understand God's intent of moving human history in this direction? Ultimately, the answer always goes back to one of our favorite Sunday school answers. The real hero of the story is God. But why is this the right answer to the question here? If we're going to discover the answer to this question and see why it is significant for us to understand today, we will need to look at four demonstrations of God's commitment to deliver his people. Four demonstrations of God's commitment to deliver his people. The first demonstration of God's commitment to deliver his people is seen as God disciplines Israel through Sisera. God disciplines Israel through Sisera. Verses 1 to 3. Then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazar. And the commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagayim. The sons of Israel cried to the Lord, for he had 900 iron chariots, and he oppressed the sons of Israel severely for 20 years. Since the account of, about Shangar was an editorial acknowledgement of something else that had been going on during the time of Ehud, the author of Judges brings our attention back to a more familiar timeline. After Ehud dies, the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, though, there, though God's response may not have been immediate, the consequences that Israel experienced as a result of their disobedience was very real. That phrase, the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, that, that language of selling someone into the hands of another is reminiscent of what Joseph's brothers did to him when they were jealous of him. Instead of killing Joseph... Joseph's brothers sold him into the hands of the Ishmaelites, who then sold Joseph to the Egyptians. Now, when God sold Israel into the hands of Jabin, the king of Canaan, he gave them over to Jabin. He allowed Jabin to do whatever he wished with Israel, because in a sense, in a sense, Israel was now his to deal with in a manner that he saw fit. God told Israel previously the blessings they would experience if they kept their part of the covenant in Deuteronomy 28 and Deuteronomy 29. But when he told them the blessings that were there, he also revealed the consequences if they were unfaithful to their promises. If they obeyed him and were faithful to him, God would cause them to experience great blessing and security in the land. However, if they failed, they would experience divine discipline at the hands of the other nations as a warning to them and the other nations. The God of Israel is all-powerful and will not be mocked. If you are going to follow after him, you must follow him with all that you are. Not distracted, not in pieces. You cannot pick and choose what parts of God that you want to worship, what parts of his doctrine of his Bible that you choose to believe. You have to be all in. As a God of absolute purity and holiness, there can be no compromise with him. 
And so the warning to the nations may be subtle, but it is effective because they are going to look at Israel and they are going to want to understand why Israel's God, the God who was powerful enough to take on the superpower of Egypt to set his slave people free, abandoned them. And the reason is clear. It is because his people failed to obey him as they said they would. And so discipline results. Now some, some have noted that Joshua had previously dealt with and defeated, killed, another individual named Jabin who reigned in Hazar in Joshua 11. However, this cannot be the same Jabin as the Jabin introduced in Joshua 11 um, is dead. Joshua kills, uh, kills Jabin in Joshua 11. And the book of Judges also makes it very clear that the book of Judges takes place after Joshua dies, as we're told in Judges 2. So what is likely happening here when you have another individual named Jabin who reigns in Hazar is that Jabin is just another king who took on the name of a predecessor, kind of like, you know, how many King Georges there are, um, or how some of the popes, they are Pope something the second or Pope something the fourth. It's because they've chose the name of someone who was before them, or it could be that Jabin is not the name of an individual it could be that Jabin is actually a title like Pharaoh or Abimelech. It's just another name for king in the culture. There's no consensus as to which one it is, but the point is this. This is a different individual than the one that we have heard of in Joshua 11. So there's not a chronological problem here. It's not like the author of Judges somehow copy and pasted wrong, and now we have the same individual in Joshua here, and he's not supposed to be there. Now, even though Joshua is presented as the instrument, oh, sorry, even though Jabin is presented as the instrument of discipline that Yahweh will cause, will use to cause his covenant people to turn from their sins and turn to him, the true instrument of discipline will actually be Jabin's commander over the army Sisera. Now, not much is known about Sisera except for where he lives. He lives in this area that's circled in red called Herosheth Hagayim. You do not need to learn how to pronounce that. Uh, it's in the northern, it's in the northeastern part of Israel, and um, how he was able to rule over this entire territory of Israel for more than tw- or for twenty years is due to the fact that he has nine hundred iron chariots, which he can use to keep the people of Israel in check. Now today. Iron chariots may not seem like that much of a technological advantage, but it's a huge advantage against foot soldiers, the foot soldiers that Israel had. It's not clear whether Israel had horses, but, I'm, but for the most part, all they had were foot soldiers. Right? So you can imagine if you were out in a field and someone was running around with a chariot being driven by a horse and they had an iron chariot and you were just on your, on your feet, how scary that would be for you if they're coming after you. Uh, if these chariot fighters were also very skilled at fighting, not only could they cover more ground than foot soldiers, they could also inflict greater casualties as well. Now, there might not seem to be much to glean from uh, these few verses that describe Israel's plight. But what we're reminded from a negative sense is that God loves his people too much 
to allow them to continue in their sin unchecked. Some people might argue that if God really loved his people, if he really loves his people, he would not punish them, but do good towards them or correcting them verbally rather than allowing them to deal with physical consequences. It's for a similar reason that many parents have shifted from a mindset of disciplining their children to correcting their children with stern talkings, talkings to and times outs. However, it's apparent from how God responds to the sinfulness of Israel that he does not share in our modern conception of what is most loving to a person who is sinning. He's not going to put us in a timeout. He's not going to just give us a stern look and say, hey, better pay attention. When we hear the word discipline, many of us are tempted to think about the over-the-top, out-of-control anger that took whatever household item was nearby to whoop us into sorrow because we have done something wrong. That's our conception of what discipline is. And if you've not had to deal with this type of discipline growing up, that is a good thing. We praise God for that. Praise God that you've never had to deal with that type of discipline because that type of discipline that's out of control over the top is abuse. However, that does not mean, that does not mean that all discipline is abuse. Let me say that again in a different way. Some discipline may be abuse, but not all discipline is abuse. Okay, some discipline may be abuse, but not all discipline is abuse. God's discipline of his people for sin is always under control, always. And it is never disproportionate to what we have done. And we know that from passages like Psalm 62, 12, Proverbs 24, 12, Romans 2, 6, and Revelation 20, 11 to 15. All these passages talk about how God, he has looked at us and he has judged us according to our deeds. He has given to us according to what we deserve. God looks at our deeds. He looks at our hearts and he judges our deeds and our hearts accordingly. His discipline and judgment is one of righteousness. It's not out of control. It's not over the top. God would not be righteous in his judgment if his judgments were not fair. Okay, God would not be righteous in his judgments if his judgments were not fair. When God disciplines his people, he lovingly allows us to experience the consequences of our actions so that they know, so that we know, that we must repent of our sins and return to the Lord. We learn not to continue sinning when we see that it is not worth it to continue sinning. Back when I was younger, I had this Spider-Man toy. It was a glove, and it had a can of silly string attached to it, and it was like this little plastic thing that you put the silly string into, and then you can pretend to be Spider-Man. Right, you have a web shooter. And I thought, hey, I'm wearing Spider-Man's glove. That means I must be invincible. I've got powers just like Spider-Man. And so there's this electric fireplace uh, in this hotel that we were staying at. And I was like, oh, it's electric. It should be fine, right? I'm Spider-Man. We're good. I stuck my hand on that glass and... Part of the glove stayed on the glass, and you can imagine what happened to my hand. I got burned, and I learned 
at that point, you don't touch hot things. Not with a Spider-Man glove that's made out of little plastic. Right? And so what I learned the hard way, what I learned from being stupid was that if you put your hand on hot things, even if you thought it was, it was fine, you will get burned. Right? There's, there's a purpose in the pain. Right? The pain is meant to instruct. The pain is meant to tell you, don't be stupid, don't touch hot things. So that's why God, in a similar way, although he doesn't call us stupid, well, I'm sure he wouldn't be wrong if he thought that we were stupid. Um, in, a, in a similar way, that's why he disciplines us. So we learn from experiencing consequences that we are not to do that thing. And it's for that reason that I mentioned last week, Hebrews 12, 7, God disciplines the children that he loves. Right? If you are a child of God, if you truly are one of his, he will discipline you when you sin. He disciplines us as training so we know to flee from sin and to pursue righteousness. Just like when our parents are trying to train us in righteousness, they or at least you know, socially acceptable behavior, they will tell us when we're wrong right? or slap us when we're wrong. God loves us too much to allow us to continue sinning because he knows that if we did not, do not learn that sin is wrong, we will continue sinning. And he demonstrates, he demonstrates his commitment to deliver his people through discipline, letting his people know that they are loved by correcting them when they are in error so that they will return to him. And return to him they did when they cried out to the Lord again. And that leads us to the second demonstration of God's commitment to deliver his people, which is God commissions Barak. God commissions Barak. Verse 4. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the sons of Israel came up to her for judgment. Deborah's status as a prophetess is not, necess- is not necessarily unusual. Because we have seen other women function as prophetesses in the scriptures. Most notably, at least in the Old Testament, most notably Moses' sister Miriam. And we we see that she is identified as a prophetess a few times. Uh, One of them being Exodus 15, 20, and the other one later in Numbers. She would periodically hear God's word when he provided it, and then she would communicate to the people what she had heard. Now, Deborah's marital status is also not something that's unusual, Um, Although the fact that we're told or that we're not told much about her husband tells us that he's not necessarily an important part of this story. But it does highlight the fact that outside of her spiritual gifting, Deborah was a regular Israelite woman. She had her gifts, but she was also just married. The only unique description for Deborah is the fact that she was judging Israel at that time and that the sons of Israel came up to her for judgment. What does that mean? And what does it look like for Deborah to be judging Israel? The summary of the role of the judges in Judges 2.16 tells us that the judges were raised up by Yahweh to deliver the people from the hands of those who plundered them. But here in Judges 4.5, Deborah is being sought after by the sons of Israel for judgment. And so what we see is that there seems to be something different going on here because she's not delivering them from each other. But she's judging amongst them. So why do we bring that up? It's because some people 
read that Deborah was judging Israel, and they assume that she was, an active, she was in the active process of delivering the people of Israel through her judging. But when you take a closer look at the text, Deborah's judging does not refer to her action of delivering the people. It's somewhat different. So what's she, what is she doing here? Well, in a similar way to what Moses was doing in Exodus 18, Deborah was hearing the cases people brought to her and was providing insights from the Lord regarding questions they may have had regarding the law and life. And we don't have any insights as to what these issues may have been, but the function of the one who was providing judgment was to tell the inquiring people what God's judgment was regarding their issue. So they would bring their case to her. She would go before the Lord in prayer. He, she would hear his answer, and she would tell them what, they, uh, what God's uh, judgment was. Or perhaps he would even just reveal to her the scriptures that she needed or the laws that she needed to know to answer their question. And so what she is giving is God's judgment towards their situation. That's why her, her action here is described as judging. And so as we look at this description of Deborah, we're left with this impression that she's a well-respected woman. She's a well-respected woman of God who was known for telling people what God had to say. And that was her reputation. And her reputation is especially helpful for us to consider as we move to the next few verses which describe Barak's commission to action. Verse 6. Now she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinamab, from Kadesh Nephali, and said to him, Behold, the Lord, the God of Israel, has commanded, Go and march to Mount Tabor and take Israel. Or, I'm sorry, and take with you 10,000 men from the sons of Nephali and from the sons of Zebulon. I will draw out to you Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his many troops to the river Kishon, and I will give him into your hand. The fact that Deborah has the authority and ability to send for and summon Barak from where she lives in the southern part of Israel, so Ramah and Bethel at the bottom, that's the that light blue part, that's the hill country of Ephraim. She's in southern Israel. She summons, uh, she summons Barak from up near the Sea of Galilee, which is that large lake of water that looks like Africa, um, she summons him from there. He has to travel all the way down from where he lives down to where she is to hear what God has to say. Right? So she sends for him, and he goes. And that ought to tell you something about how authoritative, how well-respected Deborah is. She is known for telling people what God has to say. God gave her authority, and for that reason, Barak goes down from where he lives to listen to her and to what she has to say. Now, the message that Deborah passed on to Barak commanded him to take the local soldiers from the tribes of Nathali and Zebulun and to march to Mount Tabor. Right, so Mount Tabor is right here, um, uh, kind of in this, is right here. Um, so it's like, the northern tip of Issachar and the bottom of Zebulun, that's where it is. Right, so he's supposed to take these troops and go to Mount Tabor. And from there, the Lord will draw out Sisera. It's almost kind of like you're drawing out an animal that's hiding in the, in, in the, in the, in the cracks. Right? You're trying to draw him out. And so she, the Lord is going to draw out Sisera with his chariots and his many troops for judgment. Now remember who reveals God's word 
and will to Barak. It's Deborah, the trustworthy, noteworthy, faithful prophetess of God. So what she said should be enough to get Barak to listen and obey. But look at Barak's response, verse 8. If you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. Um, hello, Barak. God is telling you through his prophetess to go. You know who she is. You know that she's trustworthy. You should just obey. Right? That's not, his response is not the response you would expect from someone whom God is going to use to deliver his people. You would expect him to obey immediately. To know that the word he is receiving from the Lord is trustworthy. And that he should have full confidence that God is with him. But that's not his response. His response is one of distrust. Now, some have tried to explain away Barak's failure by saying that there was a need to validate his commission to the soldiers that they were recruiting by having the prophetess's credibility uh, there to back him up. And that might be a valid defense from a human standpoint, but Barak still failed before God, no matter how you slice it. God commissions Barak to deliver Israel by promising that he will deliver Sisera, his chariots, and his troops over to Barak's hands. If God commissions Barak into service and promises victory, that means God will also provide the 10,000 troops Barak needs to take Sisera down and anything else that he might need as well. From our vantage point in history, Barak should have trusted that God would not only provide the victory, he would also provide the troops. But he doesn't. He doesn't. So even though God commissions Barak, Barak is far from the perfect deliverer, just like many of the judges that followed after Othniel. However, that doesn't mean that Barak is useless. As we saw with Shamgar, God can use anyone to advance his kingdom plans, even those who are at times lacking faith. Barak's lack of faith does not go without consequences, as Deborah replies in verse 9, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the honor shall not be yours on the journey that you are about to take, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. As a consequence, for Barak's lack of faith and willingness to obey God, God will no longer give uh, Sisera into Barak's hands, as was promised in verse 7. Instead, he will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. This consequence was meant to appropriately shame Barak for his failures. Now, some of you might object to such a consequence, especially now in 2019, as we affirm that men and women are equal in personhood before God. That, of course, is absolutely true. That is absolutely true. We are equal in personhood before God, but that does not mean that Barak should not have felt shame for his failure in response. As we affirmed in our sermon on gender, which should have been more properly titled Gender Roles, I'm sorry about that, um, and for the confusion that that caused, gender roles are not to be despised because they are a part of God's good plan for men and women in creation. Men and women are equal in personhood, but they have different roles that God wants for them to fulfill. So the problem here is not 
It is not that the credit for defeating Sisera would go to a woman. That's not the problem. Okay, God can use anyone to deliver his people. The problem is that Barak is a commissioned warrior who is being raised up by God to deliver the people, and he did not want to fulfill his duty. He said, oh, Deborah, if you come with me, I'll go. But if you don't, I'm just going to stay home. He refused. He, he's refusing to do his duty. It's contingent upon something that God didn't even plan for. God didn't say, oh, Barak, if you take Deborah, then I will deliver Sisera into your hands. He said, no, no, you go, Barak. You take the 10,000 troops and you deliver Israel. Right? So Barak rejects his role. That is his God-given role. It is his God-given duty, and he rejects it out of fear and a lack of faith. So this is not meant to be sexist as much as some feminists would have you believe. Barak has a God-given role that he was supposed to fulfill. His disobedience does not mean that he will no longer be used, but it does mean that the honor, which should have gone to him as a warrior, as the commander of the army, will now be given to a woman who will step up to the plate and the situation would have played out like this. Why doesn't Barak get full credit for the victory over Sisera? Didn't he defeat the entire army? Why is a woman being mentioned as the one who defended Sisera? And the answer would be because Barak failed to trust God and fulfill his duty. So God made it clear that Barak is no hero by allowing someone Barak was supposed to protect be the one who delivers. Barak was supposed to protect this woman. He wasn't supposed to be delivered by her. But in his failure, the Lord allows for him to be delivered by her. Allows for Sisera to be, to, uh, to be given over to her. Barak doubly deserves less credit for his actions here because of his failure to trust God and for his cowardice. And as a result, people will remember for all time Barak's failure to trust God's promise of sure victory. As God promised... When Barak called, the men from the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali together, 10,000, answered the call while Deborah was with him. Barak should have trusted God to provide, but he didn't, resulting in his shame despite his success. And even though we may not necessarily know what God will do like Barak did, we know that God is trustworthy. We know that God is trustworthy. So when we are tempted to be anxious, to worry, to fear, we need to remember that God will take care of us according to his will. When you're tempted to feel that anxiety, worry, fear overwhelm you, you need to remember, you need to remember that God will take care of you according to his will. And even if you that, that even if life might not turn out exactly how you would like it to, you can still trust in our sovereign God who loves us. And you can trust that he is doing something even in the midst of disappointment. Even in the midst of disappointment. Would have been nice if you got into the grad school of your choice? Absolutely. But you didn't. And that's okay. Because God is doing something. He's trying to teach you something. He's trying to lead you somewhere. 
perhaps to meet someone to bring them to faith. Even if you don't get married when you, feel, when you wanted to, God is doing something. Even if you wanted something else, for, even if you wanted a particular thing for your family and you faced nothing but disappointment, God is doing something in that. It's not like he's abandoned you. It's not like he's forgotten you. He's doing something. If we believe that God is sovereign, we have to place our trust in him. Barak knew from, from the beginning what God was going to do, and he still failed to trust God. We cannot be like that. We have to trust him. We have to place our trust in him because we know that he is sovereign. We've seen example time after time after time in the Old Testament, in the New Testament of God's faithfulness to keep his word. Because of that, brothers and sisters, even when it's hard, even when disappointment is mounting and you face nothing but disappointment time after time after time after time, we still trust in our Lord, knowing that he cares for us. Though Barak failed, God was still committed to deliver his people from their plight and bring justice upon Sisera. And as a result, he allows for this flawed man, this flawed man that he commissioned to continue to lead. And as we will see in God's third demonstration of his commitment to deliver his people, God allows this flawed man to win decidedly as well. This third demonstration of God's commitment to deliver his people is God routes Sisera. God routes Sisera. Now, before we get to that glorious deliverance, the author sets the stage for Sisera's defeat. Verse 11. Now, Heber, the Kenite, has separated himself from the Kenites, from the sons of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far as the oak in Za'anan, which is near Kadesh. Then they told Sisera that Barak, the son of Abanam, has gone to Mount Tabor. Sisera called together all his chariots, 900 iron chariots, and all the people who were with him, from Harasheth Hagayim to the river Kishon. Here, we are introduced to a particular relative of Moses' father, father-in-law, Heber, who had moved far away from his family to the oaks of Za'anan. Right? That's over there, where that red line is. Okay? So it's very, very far away. Harasheth Hagayim, where um, Sisera is from, is right over here. And this is Mount Tabor. Now, what, um, now, now what, uh, sorry, I'm blanking. <laughs> uh, what, what God is having Barak do, what God is having Barak do is he's having all of the troops from Zebulun and Naphtali come down over here and meet in, in uh, the mountain of Tabor. And what happens is Heber and his family, they hear of what's going on at Mount Tabor, and they tell Sisera, hey, there's an uprising. There's an uprising that is forming, and they are meeting at Mount Tabor. Naturally, Sisera knows, right? Sisera knows that he must spring into action. He did not subject Israel for 
20 years without learning how to squash rebellions. You don't just let them form and figure that they'll fizzle out on their own. You have to go do something. You have to squash the rebellion. And so his response is swift and strong because verse 13 tells us that Sisera calls together all of his chariots and all of his people who were with him from Herosheth Hayyim to the river Kishon. He empties the places where his troops are stationed to put down the rebellion at Mount Tabor. And this is exactly what God intended Sisera to do when he said in verse 7 that he would draw out Sisera to Barak. The bait was set at Mount Tabor and Sisera sprung the trap hard when he summoned all his troops to squash the rebellion. Read verse 14 and 15. Deborah said to Barak, Arise, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Behold, the Lord has gone out before you. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. The Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. We know for sure that God was with Barak in the defeat of Sisera because Barak actually does something that most military tacticians would never do. He has the high ground. He's on the mountain. Okay, this is not a Star Wars 3 reference. He has the high ground. He could have tried to draw Sisera up the mountain. Do you take a chariot up a mountain? No. You do not, right? Chariots operate best on flat land. Barak had the high ground, and he went down to where the chariots would have an advantage. That's stupid. You don't do that unless you want to die. But God is with Barak, so that even when Barak makes a very questionable choice, giving Sisera's chariots the decided advantage, Barak and the troops of Israel are able to win. It's a silly move from our perspective, but when God is with you, it doesn't matter. The Lord, not Barak, not Deborah, not the armies, the Lord, Yahweh, routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. God brings deliverance through Barak and the armies as they devastate Sisera's troops. And in the confusion, Sisera gets off of his chariot and he flees the battle confusion on foot. God has thoroughly defeated Sisera's armies who are now retreating. He brought deliverance even though the instrument of deliverance, Barak, had his flaws. Now, verse 16, verse 16 is a curious verse. It's a curious verse, but it demonstrates some of the flaws that God's chosen instrument for deliverance had. It says, But Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Herosheth Hagayim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not even one was left. Actually, let's read verse 17 too. Now Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Canaanite, for there were was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. Sisera flees the scene. He flees the scene, the battle scene. And Barak is so consumed with cleaning up the battle that he pursues Sisera's troops all the way back to their home base. It's the opposite direction of where Sisera is going. 
Sisera, Sisera is going to Zaanan from Mount Tabor. Barak is so consumed with the mop-up duty that he goes this way. All the way over here. That's pretty far away from over there. Right? He loses sight of what he ought to do as the commander. As the commander, he should have tried to find where Cicero was and to kill him. You have to try and kill the commander so that the commander doesn't come back with more troops angry to get you back. You don't want Cicero coming back with a vengeance. Now, while Barak's misprioritized, uh, um, misprioritized the objective, which could have been given to others, it's interesting to note, uh, as Barak demonstrates a little bit of incompetence, uh, what we see here, in even, it, what we see in an even greater sense of God's abilities, God's commitment to deliver his people will result in the sound defeat of their enemies, even if Israel makes questionable military decisions. Perhaps Israel's mistakes lend themselves to Israel's inexperience in war, or perhaps it points out just how foolish they were. But in either case, we see how strong God's commitment was to saving his people. He was willing to help his people overcome their mistakes to deliver them. And as a result, when we start to think about this and apply it to our lives, we can be confident that if the Lord is with us and using us as a part of his kingdom plans, we cannot ruin his plans. We cannot ruin his plans. We cannot, in a true sense, miss out on his plans for our lives. Because if he really wants us to do something, he will not only get us where we need to be, he will also help us through it. And that provides us with a great amount of comfort. Especially when we are afraid that we will mess up or miss out on God's plan for our lives. God is willing to deliver his people and he will do whatever it takes, no matter how often we mess up, to bring about his plans. And that leads us to our fourth demonstration of God's commitment to deliver his people, which is God subdues Jabin. God subdues Jabin. Verse 17. Now Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. And he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. Now Sisera was able to flee far away to where Heber, the Kenite, lives, which probably means that he had, had at least a day or two head start on Barak. And it's in that time frame he's moving very quickly on foot to get to a place of safety. And who better to go to than a known ally of his king, Heber? Now, interestingly, Heber's wife, Jael, not Heber, is the one who meets Sisera. And she invites him into her tent, a tent where Heber would not have been since husbands and wives lived in separate tents at that time. So offering protection, offering hospitality, she brings Sisera in and then covers him with a rug or a thick, a thick 
blanket. Jael is showing hospitality, yes, but it's a little odd that she does so because it was supposed to be her husband's responsibility to offer hospitality. Think back to when, um, when Abraham was, was uh, hosting those, those angels who came to him. Right? He is the one who offers hospitality. He is the one who takes them in. He brings them into his tent. Right? So this is kind of similar. Now, offering... Um, yeah, so uh, Jael is showing hospitality, which is weird. She's offering that hospitality, but it's, it's odd because that's supposed to be uh, Heber's uh, responsibility. But where he is in this whole exchange, we don't know. But apparently, he wasn't home. So Jael welcomes Sisera in. Verse 19. He said to her, that's Sisera, please give me a little water to drink for I am thirsty. So she opened a bottle of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. He said to her, stand in the doorway of the tent and it shall be if anyone comes and inquires of you and says, is there anyone here that you shall say no? Now just a quick little note on, on the milk. I know the text says that she opened a bottle of milk, but they didn't have bottles of milk. Okay? They didn't have glass bottles where you would go get milk. They didn't have refrigerators or, or milkmen. Um, it's just the way that they decided to translate it because uh, if, if they said she opened a skin of milk, you'd be like, what is that? Right? But it's like a wine skin. Right? The milk was contained in a, a wine skin. So she opened up the wine skin and gave him milk to drink. Now, scholars are unsure of the significance of the swap of milk for water. They're not really sure what that, what that switch is supposed to be about, what it's supposed to do. But some have suggested that the swap may have been significant because instead of being refreshing, the milk, in addition to the heat, the blanket, and the exhaustion from running away, aided Sisera in falling asleep easier. So he fell asleep easier because he drank milk. And some of you know that when you were younger, perhaps your grandma said, oh, let me microwave you some warm milk so that you can go to sleep easier. Um, or at least that's what my grandma did for me. Right? Um, now, uh, so it could be that. could be something else. It could be that because it's hot and, uh, you know, when it's hot, you don't want to drink milk. You want to drink water, right? When it's hot and you drink milk, it's a bad choice. Um, but anyway, we don't know. We don't know why... It's there, but it's there. And before he falls asleep, Sisera has Jael stand guard to make sure anyone who comes by won't be able to find him. He's, he's on his own. And he doesn't have troops to protect him anymore. And there's an army that is seeking his life. So he says, hey, can you stand guard? Okay, stand guard. Don't let, if someone comes and they, they ask if anyone's in here, just tell them that there is no one in here. He needs to be safe. So Jael is the one who can provide safety for him. And actually, in a sense, if you think about it, she's almost acting like a mother, isn't she? Right? He comes in, she offers him hospitality, she puts him to bed, gives him some milk, and then she makes sure that he's safe. Right? So she's acting like a mother. This is emphasizing the safety that Sisera must have felt when he put his head down to sleep. She's supposed to provide safety for him, but she doesn't. Verse 21. But Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg and seized the hammer in her hand and went secretly to him and drove the peg into his temple and it went through into the ground for he was sound asleep and exhausted, so he died. Pretty graphic, isn't it? And if you don't know where your temple is, it's right here. Okay, right here. And that's why um, with your glasses, they don't call the parts that go this way 
They don't call those arms of your glasses. Okay, those are the temples of your glasses because it's on your temple. Anyway, um, right? So she takes, she takes this tent peg and she just goes. It's pretty gross. It's pretty graphic. She executes him. Instead of protecting Sistra, Jael kills him. And we have no idea what her motives are. But there is some speculation that Jael has heard that the tides had turned, uh, how, how the tides had turned, and that it was to her family's advantage that she betray her husband's treaty. But that's not indicated by the scriptures, so that remains in the realm of speculation. But what we do know is that Jael executes Sisera, and in doing so, she fulfills what Deborah had said would happen as a result of Barak's disobedience. The Lord sells Sisera over to a woman. And when Barak comes to, is looking for Sisera, and Jael pulls him aside and says, I have something that you need to see. He sees the evidence of Sisera's defeat. It's solidified forever that Jael was the woman who executed Sisera by driving a tent peg through his temple. And so anytime we talk about God's deliverance of Israel through Barak, we will do so knowing that the death blow was from Jael. Now, even though the credit of the victory could be dispersed to various peoples, the author of Judges makes it very clear who should truly get the credit in verses 23 and 24. He writes this, So God subdued on that day Jabin the king of Canaan before the sons of Israel. The hand of the sons of Israel pressed heavier and heavier upon Jabin the king of Canaan until they had destroyed Jabin the king of Canaan. Though God used multiple people to advance his plan to deliver Israel from Jabin, it is God who subdued Jabin the king of Canaan before the sons of Israel at the death of Sisera. Not only did the Lord allow for Barak's forces to achieve victory in Israel, but he also strengthened them to the point that they were able to go all the way back to Jabin in Hazor and destroy him there. And in subduing Jabin, God delivered his people from the 20 years of discipline that they had endured at the hand, at the hands of Jabin. They deserved their consequences for their sin. So it's not like they were suffering needlessly, but when the time for discipline to be over came, God held Jabin accountable for his sins against Israel. So, in addition to reminding us of God's saving power by taking down a large kingdom, we are reminded of the fact that we are always, always accountable before God for our actions, even if he is allowing us to be a part of the consequences others experience for their sins. The fact that God holds everyone accountable for their actions, even the people whom he will use to bring discipline into the lives of those who are caught in sin, ought to cause us to be extra careful about the way that we conduct ourselves. God will hold everyone accountable for their actions. What you do in public, what you do in secret, what you do behind someone's back, he will hold you accountable for your actions. God is not mocked. He is not deceived. Justice will be served. And even if, even if the justice 
for our wrongs are paid for in Christ. Are paid for by Christ. Someone still had to pay for our sins so that justice is upheld. And that doesn't mean that we should feel like we have license to sin as much as we want because Romans 6 tells us that we are not to sin more so that grace can increase. Instead, we who have died to sin shall no longer live in it any longer because we have been freed from sin. Additionally, as we know from Revelation 20, we will all be rewarded according to our deeds by the Lord. So our desire to please God in all respects is even more important. Our love for God should cause us to strive to please him anyway. But knowing that the Lord will hold us accountable should cause us to have a healthy fear and reverence for God. And therefore... We should desire to be humble and to live holy before the Lord our God. As we get to the end of the account of Deborah and Barak, we see that the true hero of the story is not the unassuming person that we would least expect. In fact, it's the person that we would most expect. The true hero of the story is God. The one whom Israel has a personal relationship with because of the covenant they made with him. And as a result of that covenant, despite their continual failures, despite their lack of wisdom and experience on the battlefield, God demonstrates his commitment to save his people time and time again. He demonstrates his commitment to save his people, particularly through the discipline of Israel through Sisera, the commission of Barak, the routing of Sisera, and the subduing of Jabin. God loves his people and he will not abandon them even when they break their covenant with him repeatedly and though God may have delivered his people through the judges he raised up he himself enables delivery he himself is intimately involved with the salvation of his people so that he must be recognized as the true deliverer of Israel so as we consider what God has done on this side of redemptive history. We can have great assurance as we look back at these previous accounts of what God has done. He has proven all throughout human history that nothing can thwart his plans. Think about this. This is really cool. Even though Satan may seem to bring strong opposition to God's plans and purposes, Satan had never made headway against God. He knew from Genesis 3... That God's plan was to raise up a deliverer from Israel through his son Jesus who would put an end to Satan's kingdom. God revealed that from the very beginning. Genesis 3.15. He showed his hand. And he basically said to Satan, try and top that. No matter what Satan has done since then, he has not been able to make any headway in thwarting God's plans. Isn't that cool? We might think that perhaps he has, especially in periods of great evil, but that's not true because it only happens because God allowed for it to happen. Right? Any evil that we've seen, heard of, studied in, in history, God allowed that to happen to advance his kingdom plans to advance human history to the point where 
we recognize how much we desperately need him. And some of the things that we've seen in human history are truly horrific. And yet we still have to reconcile the fact that God allowed that to happen. God allowed that to happen. He's still good, but he allowed it to happen. Right? So even though it might seem like Satan is making headway, even though it might seem like Satan is, is mounting a serious offense against God, he's not. He can't. Because anything that Satan does is only possible because God allows it. It's only possible because God allows it. So Satan is not stronger than the Lord. He is not, as our brother Justin reminded us, he is not the king of hell. He is the chief captive of hell. God is unbeaten. He's unstoppable. He brought his salvation plan to fruition through Jesus Christ, which means that he, that his plans to get us all to glory, to get us all to heaven where we will one day behold the king in his beauty and worship him as sinless beings, it will happen. It will happen. And we will need to endure the trials that come up in our lives. But because the new covenant, which is far superior to the old covenant, is in Jesus' blood, we know that God will not abandon us. He who was faithful and committed to deliver his rebellious and sinful people from the sins they chose to pursue will also be faithful to deliver us from our sins as well. He held to his promises because of the old covenant. We have a better covenant, and he'll hold to his promises there as well. So even when it's rough, even when it's tough, and you don't see a way out, and you're just perplexed, and you have no idea what God is doing, and you're just wondering why, you know that he will get you to the finish line. He will bring you to himself. He'll bring you home so that you can worship him. You know that he'll do that. All you have to do is hang on. And he gives you the strength, even when you feel like you have none, to hang on. Even when you feel like you're at your wit's end and you don't know what, what else you can do, he will give you the strength to hang on. Though our sins may be as scarlet, he has washed those of us who have believed in Jesus and repented of our sins white as snow. And you can have assurance of your salvation and God's commitment to deliver without reservation. If, however, if, however, you realize that you have gone through this life believing that you're saved, but you are merely going through the motions and you cannot honestly say that you have a love for God, that assurance does not belong to you. That assurance does not belong to you. I know that sounds harsh, but I say it to you in love. say that to you in love. Because just because you think you're going to heaven, it doesn't mean that you will go to heaven. If you don't have a love for God, you should not expect to go there. If you think that heaven with no more pain, no more suffering, all your friends and family are present, you can do whatever you want, is good enough. You could have heaven without God and you would be fine. 
You would be satisfied. Your cup would overflow. You need to seriously consider whether you actually love God or if you really just want to make sure that you don't go to hell. So you've said that you will believe in Jesus because he'll get you something. I'm not saying you're not saved, but I am saying you should take a look. God truly loves you. He desires for you to be saved. He desires for you to be in a relationship with him, which is why he sent his son Jesus to get every single obstacle out of the way so that we could be reconciled with him, so that we could be made right with him. The faithful, committed deliverer of Israel offers that assurance of deliverance to you. Will you believe in him and be saved? Let's pray. Our Father, as we reflect on the account of Deborah and Barak and how you raised them up. You raised Jael up as well. You raised all these people up to bring deliverance to your people. We realize that the main hero of the story is you. You were the one who delivered the people of Israel, even though you used human instruments. And as we consider all that you did to save your people, we are humbled by the fact that your faithfulness is unending. Even though we're only in chapter 4, we've seen how much Israel has sinned against you and how they've continually gotten themselves in trouble violated the covenant and they need deliverance and they cry out to you again and again and again and again. And you didn't, you didn't stop. You didn't abandon them and say, well, you deserve it. Goodbye. You were still committed to deliver them. You were still committed to bring them back to yourself, which is why you disciplined them. And as we consider such faithfulness, despite such wretched faithlessness, we pray that you would grow our trust in your faithfulness, that you would give us a bigger and fuller picture of who you are so that we can joyfully worship you and be thankful how many times you don't give up on us even though we have given up on you and when others sin against us we pray that you would bring into our remembrance how often we failed you and how often you've forgiven us so that we might extend that forgiveness and that grace and that understanding to them help us to reflect Christ in this way help us to grow in trust Father to grow in faithfulness and to to See from your vantage point how much you love us so that we can worship you all the more with even greater joy because we see it another angle, another side of your faithfulness and love. We're grateful for how you have continually demonstrated your great power, your great saving power, and your great love. We pray that you would continue to bring this to our minds as we uh, reflect on this passage. In your son's name we pray. Amen.